Today we're tuning into a House hearing titled Holding Campus Leaders Accountable and Confronting Anti-Semitism. It's hosted by the House Committee on Education and the Workforce, chaired by Republican Congresswoman Virginia Fox. This is one of multiple hearings in response to the wave of anti-Semitism we've been seeing on college campuses since October 7th Hamas terror attack on Israel. Let's tune in. Today, each of you will have a chance to answer to and atone for the many specific instances of vitriolic hate-filled anti-Semitism on your respective campuses that have denied students the safe learning environment they're due. As you confront our questions in this hearing, remember you're not speaking to us, but to the students on your campus who have been threatened and assaulted and who look to you to protect them. Several of those students are with us in the, this room, including Jonathan Frieden, who's the president of Alliance for Israel and a Harvard Law student. Eyal Yacobi, who's a student at UPenn. Talia Khan, who is the president of MIT Israel Alliance and an MIT graduate student. Bella Ingber, who is co-president of NYU Students Supporting Israel and a junior at New York University. Israel Ingber, who is expected to start at the University of Chicago in the fall after taking a gap year to study in Israel after being sent home right before the atrocities of October 7th. Maya Kufer, who is a freshman at UPenn, and Liam Kriez, who is an American-Israeli sophomore at UPenn. We have a short video that we'll play now that shows what these students are facing. I want to do something which I rarely do, quote the Senate Majority Leader from New York, Chuck Schumer. On Wednesday, he took to the Senate floor to deliver an address on anti-Semitism, stating, many of the people who express these sentiments in America aren't neo-Nazis or card-carrying Klan members or Islamist extremists. There are many cases people that most liberal Jewish Americans felt previously were their ideological fellow travelers. Not long ago, many of us marched together for black and brown lives." End of quote. You see, this speech by the most powerful elected Jewish politician in America was addressed to many on his left flank. He questioned how these elements of the left which pride themselves on diversity and inclusion, could be responsible for fomenting such hatred toward liberal Jewish Americans. I quote Majority Leader Schumer to you, Presidents Gay, McGill, and Kornbluth, 
because I understand that speech to be a sort of reckoning for the Jewish identity with the radical left. Yet for 40 minutes, he fails to use the word university a single time. However, after the events of the past two months, it's clear that rabid anti-Semitism and the university are two ideas that cannot be cleaved from one another. A prime example of this ideology at work is at Harvard, where classes are taught such as DP 385, race and racism in the making of the United States as a global power. The Harvard Global Health Institute hosts seminars such as, quote, scientific racism and anti-racism, history and recent perspectives. Even the Harvard Divinity School has a page devoted to, quote, social and racial justice. Harvard also, not coincidentally, but causally, was ground zero for anti-Semitism following October 7th and is the single least tolerant school in the nation, according to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expressions 2024 College Free Speech Rankings. UPenn is right behind them at 247th of 248th. MIT is in the middle of the pack. What I'm describing is a grave danger inherent in assenting to the race-based ideology of the radical left. Senator Schumer hasn't put the pieces together, but the picture is far too clear now to American Jews. Institutional anti-Semitism and hate are among the poison fruits of your institution's cultures. The buck for what has happened must stop on the president's desk, along with the responsibility for making never again true on campus. Do you have the courage to truly confront and condemn the ideology driving anti-Semitism? Or will you offer weak, blame-shifting excuses in yet another responsibility-dodging task force? That's ultimately the most important question for you to confront in this hearing. I will close with this. I appreciate your appearances today on behalf of Harvard, UPenn, and MIT, respectively. It proves your universities have, at minimum, a sense of accountability to the American people. But my praise for post-secondary education is very limited these days. Harvard, UPenn, and MIT, you have a very big role to play in shaping the future for all of academia. This moment is an inflection point. It demands leaders of moral clarity with the courage to delineate good from evil and right from wrong. With that, I look forward to each of your testimonies. I yield to the ranking member for an opening statement. Thank you, Dr. Fox, and thank our witnesses for appearing today. Historically, college campuses have been hubs for students and faculty to foster intellectual thought and expression. Regrettably, following Hamas's October 7th attack on innocent civilians in Israel and the ongoing conflict in Gaza, college campuses have become polarized, and we've been witnessing a disturbing rise in the incidents of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. To be clear, this discrimination is nothing new on college campuses, indeed, nothing new in society generally. 
Any student of history knows that it did not start with the October 7th attacks or any one new event, and it didn't start with diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. My colleagues would do well to recall this, this country as a centuries-long history of racism and white supremacy. At the same time, free speech is a constitutional right and bedrock of our democracy, and colleges and universities are often on the front lines of defending this right. But schools are also responsible for fostering campus environments that promote understanding, respectful dialogue, and above all else, student safety. So today we'll hear from representatives of universities on their efforts to protect students and address discrimination on campus. Of note, this is an opportunity that my uh, Republican colleagues denied us in 2017 when committee Democrats called for a hearing six years ago on campus discrimination when white supremacists marched through the University of Virginia grounds shouting, Jews will not replace us. We didn't, couldn't get a hearing back then. And while my colleagues claim to be committed to combating uh, discrimination on campus, they're also contradictorily and simultaneously stoking culture wars that can be divisive and discriminatory. Moreover, House Republicans are proposing significant cuts to the Department of Education's Office of, office of Civil Rights, the very office responsible for upholding students' civil rights and investigating discrimination claims. You can't have it both ways. You can't call for action and then hamstring the, hamstring the agency charged with taking that action to protect students' civil rights. In stark contrast, the Biden administration has taken an active role in helping institutions protect students as part of the White House's national strategy to combat anti-Semitism. Under President Biden's direction, the Department of Education has provided additional guidance to colleges and universities on how to uphold their obligation under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and better address anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and all forms of discrimination on campus. We've also opened investigations into recent incidences on many campuses, including Harvard, Columbia, Cornell, Wesley, University of Pennsylvania, University of Tampa, Tampa, just to name a few. In closing, I want to echo my colleague, and I'll quote um, uh, Senator Schumer again. All Americans share a responsibility and an obligation to fight, fight back whenever we see the rise of prejudice of any type in our midst. So today, I hope uh, my Republican colleagues will denounce the culture wars that have distracted us from protecting many vulnerable students, and I hope we can stand behind the Biden administration's critical work to ensure that every student and educator has access to a campus free of discrimination, harassment, and violence. To that end, I yield back. Welcome back. We're watching a House hearing titled Holding Campus Leaders Accountable and Confronting Anti-Semitism. It's hosted by the Committee on Education and the Workforce. The chair is Congresswoman Virginia Fox, a Republican from North Carolina. This is one of multiple hearings in response to the wave of anti-Semitism we've been seeing on college campuses since the October 7th Hamas terror attack on Israel. Let's dive back in. Pursuant to Rule 8C, 
All members who wish to insert written statements into the record may do so by submitting them to the committee clerk electronically in Microsoft Word format by 5 p.m., 14 days after the date of this hearing, which is December 19, 2023. And without objection, the hearing record will remain open for 14 days to allow such statements and other extraneous material referenced during the hearing to be submitted for the official hearing record. I now turn to the introduction of our witnesses. Our first witness is Dr. Claudine Gay, who is the president of Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Our second witness is Ms. Liz McGill, who's the president of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Our next witness is Dr. Pamela Nadell, who is a professor of history and Jewish studies at American University in Washington, DC. And our final witness is Dr. Sally Kornbluth, who's president of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, note, Dr. Kornbluth will monitor her diabetes during the hearing. We thank you all for being here today and look forward to your testimony. I'd like to remind the witnesses that we have read your written statements, which will appear in full in the hearing record. Pursuant to Committee Rule 8D and Committee Practice, I ask that each of you limit your oral presentations to a five-minute summary of your written statement. I also like to remind the witnesses to be aware of the responsibility to provide accurate information to the committee. If we have a demonstration uh, that gets unruly, we will ask the um, campus police to take people out immediately. I now recognize Dr. Gay for five minutes. Chairwoman Fox, Ranking Member Scott, and distinguished members of the committee. My name is Claudine Gay, and I am the president of Harvard University. It's an honor to be here today, representing a community of more than 25,000 undergraduate and graduate students, more than 19,000 faculty and staff, and more than 400,000 alumni, including multiple members of this committee. Thank you for calling this hearing on the critical topic of anti-Semitism. Our community still mourns those brutally murdered during the Hamas terrorist attack in Israel on October 7th. Words fail in the face of such depravity, the deadliest single day for the Jewish community since the horrors of the Holocaust. In the two months since the atrocities of October 7th and the subsequent armed conflict and humanitarian crisis in Gaza, we have seen a dramatic and deeply concerning rise in anti-Semitism around the world, in the United States, and on our campuses, including my own. I know many in our Harvard Jewish community are hurting and experiencing grief, fear, and trauma. I have heard from faculty, students, staff, and alumni of incidents of intimidation and harassment. I have seen reckless and thoughtless rhetoric shared in person and online, on campus and off. I have listened to leaders in our Jewish community who are scared 
and disillusioned. At the same time, I know members of Harvard's Muslim and Arab communities are also hurting. During these past months, the world, our nation, and our campuses have also seen a rise of incidents of Islamophobia. During these difficult days, I have felt the bonds of our community strain. In response, I have sought to confront hate while preserving free expression. This is difficult work, and I know that I have not always gotten it right. The free exchange of ideas is the foundation upon which Harvard is built, and safety and well-being are the prerequisites for engagement in our community. Without both of these things, our teaching and research mission founder. In the past two months, our bedrock commitments have guided our efforts. We have increased security measures, expanded reporting channels, and augmented counseling, mental health, and support services. We have reiterated that speech that incites violence, threatens safety, or violates Harvard's policies against bullying and harassment is unacceptable. We have made it clear that any behaviors that disrupt our teaching and research efforts will not be tolerated. And where these lines have been crossed, we have taken action. We have drawn on our academic expertise to create learning opportunities for our campus community. We have begun examinations of the ways in which anti-Semitism and other forms of hate manifest at Harvard and in American society. We have also repeatedly made clear that we at Harvard reject anti-Semitism and denounce any trace of it on our campus or within our community. Anti-Semitism is a symptom of ignorance, and the cure for ignorance is knowledge. Harvard must model what it means to preserve free expression while combating prejudice and preserving the security of our community. We are undertaking that hard, long-term work with the attention and intensity it requires. Once again, I thank the committee for the opportunity to discuss this important work. I have faith today that through thoughtful, focused, and determined effort, we will once again meet adversity and grow. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kay. Ms. McGill, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairwoman Fox, Ranking Member Scott, and distinguished members of this committee for the opportunity to be here today. My name is Elizabeth McGill, and I am the president of the University of Pennsylvania. Let me begin by saying that I and the University of Pennsylvania are horrified by and condemn Hamas's abhorrent and brutal terror attack on Israel on October 7th. There is no justification, none, for those heinous attacks. The loss of life and suffering that are occurring in Israel and Gaza during the ensuing war are heartbreaking. This pain, sorrow, and fear extends to our campus and to our city of Philadelphia. This hearing this morning takes place just two days after the Philadelphia community witnessed in horror the hateful words and actions of protesters who marched through the city and then near our campus. These protesters directly targeted a center city business that is Jewish and Israeli owned, a troubling and shameful act of anti-Semitism. 
Philadelphia police and Penn Public Safety were present, and thankfully no one was injured. But these events have understandably left many in our community upset and afraid. Anti-Semitism, an old, viral, and pernicious evil has been steadily rising in our society, and these world events have dramatically accelerated that surge. Few places have proven immune, including Philadelphia and campuses like ours. This is unacceptable. We are combating this hate on our campus with both immediate and comprehensive action. I have condemned anti-Semitism publicly, regularly, and in the strongest possible terms. And today, let me reiterate my and Penn's unyielding commitment to combating it. We immediately investigate any hateful act, cooperating with both law enforcement and the FBI, where we have identified individuals who have committed these acts in violation of either policy or law. We initiate disciplinary proceedings and engage law enforcement. We have acted decisively to ensure safety throughout and near our campus, expanding the presence of public safety officers at our religious life centers and all across campus. On November 1st, just over a month ago, I announced a Penn's action plan to combat anti-Semitism. This builds on our anti-hate efforts to date, and it is anchored firmly in the United States national strategy to, count, to counter anti-Semitism. The plan centers on three key areas and has many elements. Those areas are safety and security, engagement, and education. As part of this plan, I have convened and charged a task force to identify concrete, actionable recommendations, directing them to provide me with their recommendations both in real time and then a final report in a couple of months. To ensure that our Jewish students have a direct channel to share their experiences with me, I've created a student advisory group on the student experience. Today's hearing is focused on anti-Semitism and its direct impact on the Jewish community, but history teaches us that where anti-Semitism goes unchecked, other forms of hate spread and ultimately can threaten democracy. We are seeing a rise in our society in harassment, intimidation, and threats toward individuals based on their identity as Muslim, Palestinian, or Arab. At Penn, we are investigating all these allegations for members of our community and providing resources to support individuals experiencing threats, online harassment, and doxing. We will continue to deploy all the necessary resources to support any member of the community experiencing hate. And today we're tuning into a House hearing titled Holding Campus Leaders Accountable and Confronting Anti-Semitism. It's hosted by the House Committee on Education and the Workforce, chaired by Republican Congresswoman Virginia Fox. And this is one of multiple hearings in response to the wave of anti-Semitism we've been seeing on college campuses since the October 7th Hamas terror attack on Israel. Let's tune back in. Dr. Nadell, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman. Chairwoman Fox and Ranking Member Scott for inviting me today. I'm a Pamela Nadell. I'm a professor of Jewish history at American University, and I'm currently writing the book Anti-Semitism and American Tradition, supported by a National Endowment for the Humanities Public Scholar Award. And I'm delighted to be here today because this gives me an opportunity to thank Congress for sustaining through the NEH scholarship essential to understanding our nation's past. This is the third time I have testified about this topic before Congress. The first was in 2017, just three months after white supremacists 
chanting, Jews will not replace us, paraded through the University of Virginia, brandishing torchlights, echoing Nazi stormtroopers strutting through Germany in the 1930s. I emphasize this because the anti-Semitism igniting on campuses today is not new. It is part of a long history of American anti-Semitism. While anti-Semitism is difficult to define, historical examples convey some of its contours. Anti-Semites believe that Jews have been corrupted by money since Judas portrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and they've employed code names for avaricious Jews, Shylock, Rothschild, and in the 21st century, George Soros. Anti-Semites believe Jews conspire to destroy Christian Western civilization. These conspiracy theories gained currency in the 1920s when Henry Ford's newspaper ran the series, The International Jew, the World's Foremost Problem. Today, the charge that the Jews are internationalist has been replaced by the dog whistle globalist, implying that Jews are the puppet masters of the worldwide order. Across American history, People from all walks of life have conveyed anti-Semitic ideas since 1654, when New Amsterdam Governor Peter Stuyvesant tried to expel, and I quote, this deceitful race, such hateful enemies and blasphemers of the name of Christ. Now, more than 350 years later, we have just marked the fifth anniversary of the murders at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue. On city streets, abuse is hurled at Orthodox Jews, and swastikas are graffitied on dorm doors and also at the State Department. The long history of American anti-Semitism left its mark in higher education. Quotas on the admission of Jewish students began in the Ivy League in the 1920s and spread to more than 700 private colleges and universities. The campuses also wrestled with the challenge of anti-Semitic speech before this fall. In the early 1990s, Holocaust deniers took out full-page ads in college newspapers. Those ads launched furious debates about free speech on campus and also helped propel Holocaust courses into the university to respond to the disinformation. Anti-Israel invective has been flaring on campus well before this fall. I could look back more than 20 years. In October 2000, 200 students at the University of Michigan yelled, Israel is a fascist state, and protested a Hillel teach-in. But the barbarity of the Hamas terror of October 7th adds a terrible new chapter to Jewish history. Anyone who claims to care about human rights should denounce these horrors. That so many on campus not only did not, but that they justified the savagery in name of opposition to Israel has caused Jews around the world deep anguish. While I deplore all hateful speech, anti-Semitic speech remains in America protected. Free speech stands at the core of the liberal arts education, an education which almost every member of Congress benefited from when they were students. But free speech does not permit harassment, discrimination, bias, threats, or violence in any form. And when they occur, our institutions, and not just the campus, but our nation, 
They have in place mechanisms to respond. The American Jewish community has long strategized about how to reduce anti-Semitism. Their efforts received a stunning confirmation when the US national strategy to counter anti-Semitism was published. I believe this is the first time any nation has developed such a document. I urge Congress to do everything in its power to support the national strategy and also the forthcoming national strategy to counter Islamophobia. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Kornbluth, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you. Chairwoman Fox, Ranking Member Scott, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for this opportunity to describe how MIT is fighting the scourge of anti-Semitism. My name is Sally Kornbluth. I have been president of MIT since January of this year. As an American, as a Jew, and as a human being, I abhor anti-Semitism. And my administration is combating it actively. Since October 7th, my campus communications have been crystal clear <coughs> about the dangers of anti-Semitism and about the atrocity of the Hamas terror attack. Let me repeat what I said in my very first message to campus. In that video, I said, quote, the brutality perpetrated on innocent civilians in Israel by terrorists from Hamas is horrifying. In my opinion, such a deliberate attack on civilians can never be justified." Unquote. I also made clear that students were feeling unsafe because of their Jewish faith or their ties to Israel, and said, quote, that should trouble every one of us deeply. Unquote. I have reinforced this message, including in a November 14th campus video, as I said then, quote, anti-Semitism is real, and it is rising in the world. We cannot let it poison our community, unquote. I have been direct and unequivocal, and such leadership statements are important, but they must be paired with action. And this is just what we are doing at MIT. Months before October 7th, MIT joined the International Hillel Campus Climate Initiative which helps universities build awareness of and actions against anti-Semitism. We have launched an MIT-wide effort called Standing Together Against Hate. It will emphasize both education and community building, especially in our residence halls. In addition to fighting anti-Semitism, it will address Islamophobia, also on the rise and also underreported. MIT will take on both, not lumped together, but with equal energy and in parallel. Importantly, as is clearly visible on campus, we have increased the police presence. Safety has been our primary concern. Nonetheless, I know some Israeli and Jewish students feel unsafe on campus. As they bear the horror of the Hamas attacks and the history of anti-Semitism, these students have been pained by chance in recent demonstrations. I strongly believe that there is a difference between what we can say to each other, that is what we have a right to say, and what we should say as members of one community. Yet as president of MIT, in addition to my duties to keep the campus safe and to maintain the functioning of this national asset, I must at the same time ensure that we protect speech and viewpoint diversity for everyone. This is in keeping with the Institute's principles on free expression. 
Meeting those three goals is challenging, and the results can be terribly uncomfortable, but it is essential to how we operate in the United States. Those who want us to shut down protest language are, in effect, arguing for a speech code. But in practice, speech codes do not work. Problematic speech needs to be countered with other speech and with education, and we are doing that. However, the right to free speech does not extend to harassment, discrimination, or incitement to violence in our community. MIT policies are clear on this. To keep the campus functioning, we also have policies to regulate the time, manner, and place of demonstrations. Reports of student conduct that may violate our policies are handled through our faculty-led Committee on Discipline. Our campus actions to date have protected student safety, minimized disruptions to campus activities, and protected the right to free expression. We are intensifying our central efforts to combat anti-Semitism, the vital subject of this hearing. I note that I am also deeply concerned about the rise in prejudice against Arabs, Muslims, and Palestinians, nationally and in our community. And we are determined to combat that as well. We are also supporting faculty, staff, and student initiatives to counter hate. And thanks to an inspiring group of faculty members, we are seeing more discussion among students with conflicting views. We know there is further work to do, but we are seeing progress, and MIT's vital mission continues. Thank you. I am happy to answer questions. We're watching a House hearing titled Holding Campus Leaders Accountable and Confronting Anti-Semitism. It's hosted by the Committee on Education and the Workforce. The chair is Congresswoman Virginia Fox, a Republican from North Carolina. This is one of multiple hearings in response to the wave of anti-Semitism we've been seeing on college campuses since the October 7th Hamas terror attack on Israel. Let's dive back in. Um. Before I ask my questions, let me, um, let me do some housekeeping. Under Committee Rule 9, we'll now question witnesses under the five-minute rule. I remind members that I'll strictly enforce the five-minute rule. So, you're, so members are advised to keep your questions succinct so the witnesses have time to answer. Please don't talk for four minutes and then ask the witness a question. We've heard from many students that they do not feel safe. You've talked about that in your statements. But the anti-Semitism we've seen and on your campuses didn't come out of nowhere. There are cultures at your institutions that foster it because you have faculty and students who hate Jews, hate Israel, and are comfortable apologizing for terror. How did your campuses get this way? What is it about the way that you hire faculty and approve curriculum that's allowing your campuses to be infected by this intellectual and moral rot? Uh, President Gay, I'm gonna ask you to give me a brief answer. I also would invite you to follow up with more in writing, and we will follow up with you. So I will go down the line, President Gay, then President McGill, and President Kornbluth. Thank you. Thank you, Chairwoman Fox. Again, anti-Semitism has no place at Harvard. 
When we recruit faculty, we do so with the understanding that they are joining a community where we, we honor, celebrate, and nurture open discourse, both on the campus and in the classroom. And to be a successful teacher and educator at Harvard requires the ability to draw out all of the viewpoints and voices in your classroom irrespective of one's political views. And we devote significant resources to training our faculty in that pedagogical skill and Thank to prioritizing you. that in our recruiting and hiring. Thank you. Ms. McGill. Thank you for the opportunity to address the question. Uh, I'm troubled by what you're reporting about the, the culture of the institutions uh, that we're leading. Um, very contrary to the values that I hold as a leader of Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania as well as the institution, uh, where any form of hate is uh, very contrary to our values. Uh, I would venture an answer, uh, Chairwoman Fox, that anti-Semitism has a, a role in the broader society, and that's what we're seeing happening in the society and on our campuses, and I'm committed to combating it in immediate term and the long term. Thank you. Dr. Kornbluth. Yes, so MIT is a majority uh, STEM education and research institution, and we are devoted to solving the problems that face society. Our faculty are hired for their brilliance. Now, we allow them to say what they'd like in the classroom in the name of free expression, but we are committed to having them know that, this is, that our campus must be a welcoming and inclusive environment, and although um, they may say what they like in the classroom academically, targeting any individual student, harassing or discriminating is strictly forbidden in our classrooms and on campus. Thank you. We will be following up with asking for specific plans for disciplining student and faculty who assault or harass students or prevent them from accessing undis undisrupted classes or campus spaces. We'll be asking for your plan for preventing this rot from perpetuating, how you're going to hire and assess instructors, how will you change how you govern students, and what are the practical steps you will plan to take. Um, I, I want to ask you one more question. It's, as I've said, and, and Ms. McGill, I appreciate the fact that you feel uh, concerned about the fun my feeling about the fundamental culture on the campuses that's foundational to this issue, denial of the right of Israel to exist. So I want to ask each one of you, President Gay, do you believe that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish nation? I agree that the state of Israel has the right to exist. Ms. McGill, same question. I agree, Chairwoman Fox, the state of Israel has the right to exist. Dr. Kornbluth. Absolutely, Israel has the right to exist. I want to thank our witnesses again for being here and to say we will follow up and to tell you that um, while we've talked about a larger culture out there, it's the universities who should be um, examples of what this nation is all about. I yield back and I recognize the distinguished 
ranking member who is wanting me to recognize Mr. Courtney. Thank you, uh, uh, Chairwoman Fox. And I want to thank you for the moment of silence for the 137 hostages who are still being held um, to this day. We had a hearing a couple weeks ago on anti-Semitism where I shared with my colleagues and the witnesses that um, a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen with family in Waterford, Connecticut, was one of those being held at the time um, along, and we thought her husband, um, her name was Liat Benin and Avi Benin. Uh, uh, the good news is a week ago, uh, Liat was released, uh, and unfortunately, a day later, the Israeli military uh, shared with the family that uh, human remains, which were found at the kibbutz where the violent attack took place, uh, unfortunately matched up to Aviv. Uh, again, Hamas never shared the information about whether or not they had him or not, which is just another example of their, their treachery. Um, Dr. Nadel, uh, in your testimony on page eight, you talked about President Biden's uh, U.S. national strategy to counter anti-Semitism, and particularly you talked about the use of Title VI of the U.S. Civil Rights Act in terms of being uh, an effective tool on campuses to, to combat anti-Semitism. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. So Title VI allows for um, <clears throat> responding to some of the issues that um, the, the presidents of these universities, but also, frankly, of most universities around the nation, it seems at the moment, have been dealing with in terms of when um, anti-Semitism moves into, moves beyond free speech, moves in beyond rhetoric, and it, it involves harassment or intimidation. The issue is that the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education needs to be fully funded in order to implement um, the U.S. strategy to counter anti-Semitism. And I just want to comment about this strategy because it is an extraordinary document. It has actions for the, um, the White House to uh, carry out or the, the, um, that, that, that division, but it has issues for Congress to carry out, which I have a sense Congress has not been carrying out, and it also has major charges to whole of society uh, to respond to anti-Semitism, some of which we are hearing is already happening on the campuses. The problem is they don't make headlines because they're not a bunch of protesters. Thank you. And uh, again, it's important to note that document was uh, released back in May of 2023, uh, certainly before uh, this committee and, and, and the you know, outrageous events of October 7th. <coughs> And, and uh, the uh, ranking member mentioned in his opening remarks that, you know, at the same time we're holding this hearing, we're also now still trying to get a budget passed for fiscal year 2024. The uh, majority um, in the House reported out their budget, which, as he mentioned, uh, carried a cut for the Office of Civil Rights. To be more specific, it's a 25 percent cut, $35 million out of their rather small budget, $72 million lower than what the president had asked for. Uh, I mean, we, we had a witness here again two weeks ago from the eight who worked for almost 20 plus years at ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. They've been around for 110 years fighting anti-Semitism in this country. And uh, again, she talked about the fact that, you know, that type of cut is just going to cripple uh, the ability of the anti-Semitism police, if you want to sort of look at it that way, in terms of trying to, to stop this type of activity on campuses. And again, I was just wondering if you had sort of a, what your view is of a cut in terms of the impact of the Office of Civil Rights to do its job. I think the cut is 
absolutely devastating. And what I would also remind everyone is that the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education does not only focus on anti-Semitism. It focuses on all forms of hate. And I, I would guess, I actually tried to find this information but was unable to do so, but I would guess that the majority of complaints are not coming from Jewish students, although maybe now, given what happened since October 7th, I would guess the majority of the complaints are actually coming from people of color and from others who have faced terrible bias. So it is unthinkable, unconscionable to make that cut. Now, and talk is cheap. I mean, I've been around here a while. Budgets are what really, I think, show the true um, willingness to act in situations like this. And I'd just like to close by mentioning that um, in Connecticut, uh, a young uh, transfer student, international student uh, from the West Bank, um, Tassin Ali Hamad, a, a sophomore at Trinity College, who's a math major, who was up visiting friends in Burlington, Vermont. They were walking from going bowling and this coward came out of his house uh, with a firearm and at point blank range shot all three uh, students who were absolutely, they were going to their a relative's house at the time. And it shows again that the civil rights uh, effort of the Department of Justice, which also was being subjected to a potential cut, uh, needs to get full funding um, in the Office of Civil Rights. And with that, I would yield back. And this concludes our coverage of the House hearing on anti-Semitism on college campuses. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. IRS whistleblowers are out speaking out about the Hunter Biden tax case. What they're saying as the president's son also faces hurdles in his request to subpoena Trump. Could national security be on the line if a key authorization for the FBI expires? Here what the FBI director is arguing in Congress. Almost two months since Hamas's October 7th attacks on Israel, lawmakers in Congress are highlighting the, the atrocities with families of those still held hostage. Amid a reported rise in violent cartel crime, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is traveling to Mexico. Now she's trying to address the fentanyl crisis. Electric vehicle owners report 80% more problems with their cars compared to non-electric vehicles. What's behind the difference? Is your genetic information safe? A testing company reveals a hefty number of users who were exposed to a data breach in October. How about visiting a new city in a staggering minus 70 degrees? Tourists are traveling to Siberia to experience dangerously low temperatures. Stay around to see the footage without having to leave the comfort of your home. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Welcome to NTD News Today. We start with the ongoing investigations into the president's son. First, the probe regarding alleged tax crimes committed by Hunter Biden. IRS whistleblowers are testifying behind closed doors today. Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler are testifying before the House Ways and Means Committee. The two previously said the federal investigation into Hunter Biden wasn't conducted properly. They say it was influenced by politics. Today, they're discussing information protected by the Internal Revenue Code, meaning information related to confidential tax returns. 
And over to Hunter Biden's gun charge. In that case, a special counsel urged a federal judge to deny Hunter Biden's subpoena request. The younger Biden wanted to subpoena former President Trump and officials who served in the Justice Department during his administration. Special counsel David Weiss called the request far-reaching and said the former officials had not brought any charges in that case. And in other Trump-related news, the former president is set to join an Iowa town hall. Fox News reports that Trump is heading to the Hawkeye State today to join host Sean Hannity. The town hall will be pre-taped in front of a live audience. It's set for release tonight. And four candidates have qualified for the fourth GOP presidential primary debate set for tomorrow night. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie will face off in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Former President Trump will hold a campaign fundraiser that night. Six weeks remain until the Iowa caucuses open the 2024 GOP nomination calendar. The Republican National Committee has not announced if it will host any future debates. Tune in tomorrow at 10 p.m. Eastern for exclusive post-debate coverage on NTD News. Gain insights, analysis, and a comprehensive review of the debate. Don't miss out on the in-depth perspectives. Should the FBI continue collecting data on foreigners outside the U.S. who pose a threat to national security? FBI Director Christopher Wray argued before Congress this morning for the measure known as Section 702. When it comes to foreign adversaries like Iran, whose actions across a whole host of threats have grown more brazen, seeking to assassinate high-level officials, kidnap dissidents, and conduct cyber attacks here in the United States, or the People's Republic of China, which poses, in my view, a generational threat to our economic and national security. Stripping the FBI of its 702 authorities would be a form of unilateral disarmament. Ray was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee during its annual oversight of the FBI. Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act is set to expire by the end of the year. It authorizes the FBI to collect data without a warrant on foreigners who are located outside the country. However, it's come under fire for being used to access information on Americans as well. The House Judiciary Committee is set to consider a bill on reauthorizing Section 702 tomorrow. And a prominent disinformation scholar has accused Harvard of suppressing her speech. Joan Donovan alleges that the prestigious university hindered and dissolved her research team. She left Harvard in August. Donovan's team investigated a trove of Facebook files in 2021. They say the documents show algorithms that fostered racial animosity and damaged teens' mental health. The alleged actions impacting her team coincided with a $500 million donation to Harvard, a foundation run by Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan made the contribution. Donovan wants Harvard's general counsel to investigate Donovan's potential, the donation's potential influence. She's also seeking a probe from the Massachusetts Attorney General's office and the Department of Education. Harvard's Kennedy School rejected the allegations. Both Chan and Zuckerberg went to Harvard, where the platform was launched. And members of Congress are highlighting the atrocities of Hamas as the two-month anniversary of the October 7th attack approaches. A bipartisan panel of lawmakers on the House Foreign Affairs Committee hosted the American Jewish Committee and several family members of hostages held in Gaza. 
We have these hostages for these families. Bring them home now. Bring them home. They are in darkness. Literally, in tunnels. I talked to a mother. Her daughter came out, and she said, my daughter was in darkness. Like, she hadn't seen the sun in 50 days in a tunnel, and she was in darkness. And they brought her out into the light. We need to provide that light. Congressman Michael McCall chairs the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He gave a recount of the October 7th attack and highlighted Hamas's sexual violence. McCall said Hamas is responsible for the atrocities against both the Israeli people and the Palestinian people. And he called for the release of all hostages held by Hamas. The American Jewish Committee is one of the most prominent Jewish organizations in America. Along with other Jewish groups, they launched the 10-7 Project today. The project aims to promote continued U.S. bipartisan support for Israel and push for accurate coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. Now let's take a look at the southern border, starting with Arizona, where a port of entry was closed because of an influx of people coming to the U.S. Federal officials closed a port of entry in the remote area of Lukeville, Arizona. That's to relocate operations, officials watching vehicle and pedestrian traffic going both ways. Instead, they'll assist Border Patrol agents in arresting and processing the new arrivals. The temporary closure of the crossing started Monday. That's as changing migration routes overwhelmed Border Patrol agents stationed there. Arizona's U.S. Senators and Governor called the Biden administration's closure unacceptable. And part of the reason more migrants are coming might be violence in Mexico. News outlet Border Report says cartel violence is terrorizing locals south of the Rio Grande. This reportedly leads to more immigrants making their way to the U.S. The outlet reports that in some towns, over a third of adults have experienced cartel violence in some form. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is visiting Mexico City this week. That's to boost cooperation in combating illicit finance and fentanyl trafficking. Mexico's role in U.S. supply chains will also be addressed. Yellen is scheduled to be in Mexico today through Thursday. She's set to meet with Mexico's president, the country's central bank governor, and Mexico's finance minister. Coming up, an explosion shakes a peaceful neighborhood just miles away from the nation's capital. What we know about the suspect. And professors walk out of class in California. How long will the educators be on strike, and how is the university responding to their demands? Online fame through an illegal stunt. A YouTuber has earned himself a six-month prison term. Find out what he did in just a moment here on NTD News Today. explosion shook a peaceful neighborhood just miles away from the nation's capital. A suspect was reportedly shooting a flare gun as police executed a search warrant. NTD's Sam Wong reports. We're here in Arlington, Virginia, right at the cross street of Ace Road and North Buchanan. And right behind me here is about as close as we can get to where the explosion took place. And of course, a lot has unfolded in this unusually peaceful suburb. At the time of this recording, as you can see, police and other first responders are still on active duty. Bear in mind, this is the kind of stuff we don't often see in real life. 
So I spoke to a resident nearby, and here's what he told me. I was just washing some dishes, and all of a sudden I see the kitchen window like reverberating like this, and I thought, "Wow, what's going on?" I mean, that was too, too powerful for, for a firecracker or something like that. And uh, I, you know, I had to look outside what was going on, and then all of a sudden I see the fire coming up, and I said, "Well, something happened. Must be some." Uh, I mean, the explosion was such that I thought it was. Uh, a uh, military-grade explosive that, that uh, went off. So, yeah, well, all the neighbors were out. Everybody was kind of worried. And the moment we heard that there were shots fired, we all went back home. So, But it's uh, kind of worrisome, you know. You, you never, I mean, this is a very quiet area. We never see so many cops in one place. Reporting from Arlington, Virginia, Sam Wong, NTD News. 17 Texas police officers are no longer facing charges for tactics they used during the 2020 George Floyd protests, per now. The Travis County District Attorney has now decided to ask the DOJ to step in and investigate instead. Four other officers still face prosecution. The DA didn't explain why he was deciding now to drop these cases. Many of the officers involved were indicted in February 2022 but no trials took place. There were concerns about whether the police response, responses during the protests were illegal, and the DA campaigned on holding the police accountable. The mayor of Austin says he hopes the officers will be able to return to community service and their normal lives. He previously floated the idea of pardoning them. The Republican Party of Florida is calling a special meeting to address a chairman facing a sexual assault investigation. Christian Ziegler is accused of sexually assaulting a woman in October. He has denied any wrongdoing and refused to step down, despite calls from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to give up his role. Ziegler reportedly admitted to the relations, but said it was consensual. In a statement Friday, Ziegler's attorney said, quote, We are confident that once the police investigation is concluded, that no charges will be filed. The meeting with the Republican Party of Florida will take place in Orlando on December 17th. Hackers stole the data of nearly 7 million 23andMe users in October. It includes sensitive information such as names, birth years, and ancestry reports. TechCrunch first reported the figure on Monday. The genetic testing company says hackers may have collected passwords stolen from other sites. Bad actors could have reused them in an effort to hijack 23andMe accounts. The technique is known as credential stuffing. It's one reason why cybersecurity experts recommend using different passwords for different sites. Two-factor authentication is another useful tool that can also help disrupt this kind of hack. The breach impacted about half of the company's customers. 23andMe has a total of about 14 million users. And when a company reinvests its profits, should investors be taxed on them? The Supreme Court is hearing a case today which could have sweeping ramifications for the existing tax code. The case centers on Charles and Kathleen Moore, who are investors in an India-based company. They were hit with a one-time $15,000 bill, tax bill because of a provision in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The Moores argue they shouldn't be taxed because the company's profits were reinvested and they never received any income from it. The justices could limit their decision to just this measure, but any ruling in favor of the Moores could inject uncertainty into the nation's current tax code. 
And California State University faculty are launching four days of strikes across various campuses. The educators are demanding better pay and benefits. So essentially the general salary increase, which is what we are given to keep up with inflation, was compounded since 2019 has been 7.1%. Where inflation in this area is 22.5%. And the way the finances are being managed by the system right now in the university, it really feels like a corporation. The California Faculty Association is holding the strike. The union represents roughly 29,000 professors, librarians, and coaches, and others. The group is fighting for a 12% salary increase. The union is also asking for longer parental leave, a full semester instead of the current six weeks. The university's chancellor's office says the pay increase they're seeking isn't feasible. Other California State University workers are also asking for more pay. What's the future of Medicare? Presidential candidates have on the whole been fairly mum on this touchy topic amid warnings that the benefits system could run out of money in just a few years. But now Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis and former President Trump have all come out with stronger stances in recent days. This as polling data from KFF in May suggests nearly 60% of Americans see the Affordable Care Act favorably. Earlier, I spoke with a former U.S. Product Safety Commissioner under Trump and Obama, Anne-Marie Burkle, who's also a former GOP Congresswoman. Let's see that now. Anne-Marie Burkle, given your experience as a U.S. Product Safety Commissioner and Congresswoman, what do you see as the primary challenges in reforming or replacing Obamacare as so many GOP primary candidates are proposing to do? Well, thank you for the question. And I will say that probably it's my nursing background that really, that I spent some time in nursing before I went to law school. So, and I have a daughter who's a nurse. So this healthcare is very near and dear to me. But um, I think what the Affordable Care Act did was it just skyrocketed the price of healthcare. And so what members of Congress and our lawmakers need to do is to lower the cost of premiums. And you do that by lowering the cost of healthcare. Um, you know, and I think affordability of health care is foremost on the minds of the American people. And with that in mind, you know, a there's overhaul being suggested by various candidates. And at the same time, recent polling shows that the Affordable Care Act is still quite popular. So what do you suggest that these candidates keep in mind when they're making their proposals? So I think it's important to um, talk about lowering the cost of those premiums, but not removing any of the services that are provided by the Affordable Care Act. As you say, the American people have gotten used to that law. It's been in place now over 10 years. And so they're, they don't want to hear about replacing the Affordable Care Act. And so I think what Congress needs to do is to look at the free market and see how they can best lower the cost of health care without really damaging or affecting any of the services that the American people can get. So what elements of the Affordable Care Act do you think have been successful? You mentioned affordability, but what, what alongside that do you think needs reform, if anything? It's less about what needs to be reformed with the Affordable Care Act, but more about the system in general. So if you look at what lawmakers are doing right now, they are, they're really doing more special interest uh, legislation. 
They're doing pharma's bidding. They're doing uh, the hospital, the big, harsh hospital monopolies. They're doing their bidding. And they really need to get back to focusing on the American people. In the Senate, Bernie Sanders is he's chairman of the health committee, which is addressing health care issues. And so we know where Bernie wants to get. He wants to get to single-payer health care. That's problematic. The Republicans really need to develop an agenda of their own. They need to modernize, streamline the FDA so that we can get more bioidenticals, more generic drugs into the marketplace. They need to reform the patent system so more drugs can come off the patent and be available at a much lower cost. So a lot of things they can do, and it's not by following along with the Democrats. They really need to be creative and really focus on the free market solutions. And so with the next GOP primary debate coming up, what do you think viewers would be wise to watch out for regarding Obamacare and statements about Medicare? I think it's really the candidates understanding that it's the free market, not more government, that's going to lower the cost of health care. And by doing some of the things I suggested, modernizing the FDA, looking at hospital monopolies, that's something that has really driven up the cost of health care. Smaller hospitals have merged into large uh, monopolies, and they can drive up the cost of uh, insurance coverage because they can demand, they've got more leverage when there's several hospitals, they can demand higher prices um, for, from the insurance companies. All of those things drive up the cost of health care. And what Congress and what any candidate who's standing on that stage needs to understand, the American people don't want health care taken away, but they want it to be more affordable. Thank you so much. Anne-Marie Burkle, great to speak with you. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. An all-female Catholic college will admit men who identify as women. St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, said it will consider admission for undergraduate applicants who, quote, consistently live and identify as women, unquote. The bishop of the regional diocese, Kevin Rhodes, said the new policy is at odds with Catholic teaching. For clarity on what those teachings are and why the college has taken this stance, I spoke with Ryan Helfenbein, Executive Director of the Standing for Freedom Center at Liberty University. Ryan Helfenbein, thank you for joining us. What's the view of the Catholic Church on this issue? Well, I would say that traditionally the Catholic Church has always acknowledged uh, when it comes to the doctrine of anth biblical anthropology that men and women are created in the image of God. And so that, that's something that's shared between Protestant and Catholics alike has been shared for well over uh, you know, uh, a millennium and a half, uh, when you think about it, 1,500 plus years since the early ecumenical councils. And so it, it is bizarre to think uh, that any Catholic institution of any size, whether it be the church itself or, uh, you know, a college, a Catholic college bearing the Catholic name, to compromise on this issue because it, it is an absolute um, sacrilegious posture. Yeah. Uh, against against God himself. Why is St. Mary's College going against this viewpoint of the church? Well, I think that this ha comes down to pragmatism. I, I think that this is the, the, the politics of the day. Uh, and and you, you look at so many areas uh, of, of compromise that uh, whether it be traditional mainline Protestant churches, Catholic churches, the cultural and sexual revolution is so pervasive in, in culture that they're looking for ways to, to compromise in order to buy themselves 
um, or win themselves uh, uh, support. So they're trying to ingratiate themselves with the zeitgeist of today, with the spirit of the age. And I, and I think that, that it's pragmatism that is fueling uh, this move. And what kind of pressures inside and outside the organization do you think are yeah, leading to this? Well, I very good question. I'm glad when you say pressures, there are all kinds of accrediting bodies, colleges, institutions of higher learning that are being pushed and cajoled into accepting and adopting SOGI policies that have been written into those new standards. These are these are accrediting bodies uh, that that oftentimes oversee, uh, hold institutions accountable in terms of their academic credentialing, and so they are pushing sexual orientation, gender identity, and part of that is fueling that. The other is that you might have even, and I'm I'm only speculating, but you have people in the board of trustees. It's not just faculties that that uh, pressure institutions to compromise, but it's also the board of trustees. There's a kind of pragmatism there that when people are thinking or they're facing the idea of potentially, uh, you know, uh, being fined or, 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 or having, uh, you know, stuff leaked to the press, you know, yeah. they're wanting then in those situations to find a way to turn the corner. And so they say, well, we should just, we should just allow this to happen uh, so we can move along and get along. Now, Ryan, this is not the first Catholic institution to adopt these viewpoints on gender. What's driving the broader trend nationwide uh, in this direction? Well, with respect to my Catholic friends, and I have many Catholic friends, you know, I, I, I'm seeing this as a a shift. You know, you see the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church, that there is a kind of divergence there. There's a divergence going on, a division, if you will, even with the Methodist Church uh, globally, and uh, between the the conservatives, those who are holding fast to the tradition, uh, to the doctrines, uh, to the faith, and then those who are departing from it. And so I, I don't want to say whole cloth every Catholic is agreeing with this. I don't want to say whole cloth all Catholic, Catholic institutions are going along and capitulating with wokeism or, or, or you know, critical theory or, or the, the sexual revolution. But, but, but some institutions are, and it reveals the, the underlying issue. They are not committed to the root of the faith. They're not committed to the mission of the institution itself, the, the, the purpose for which that institution was founded. And so you're seeing this compromise that's taking place. You're seeing it uh, within the very a various aspects and the apparatus of the, of the Roman Catholic Church itself. Uh, at, at, at all different levels, including the Vatican, that there are these concerns over the tradition, over the faith, over the doctrine, versus pragmatism and going along with this sexual revolution. All right, Ryan Helfenbein, Executive Director for the Standing for Freedom Center. Thank you. Thank you. Intentionally crashing an airplane, destroying the wreck, and obstructing the investigation, turned out it's illegal. A YouTuber was trying to boost viewership and secure a sponsorship deal. Now he's landed six months in prison. The YouTuber named Trevor Jacob posted a video titled, I Crashed My Airplane in December 2021. The video has gained over 4 million views. Prosecutors said he lied to investigators about not knowing the downed plane's location. He was then found to have first moved the wreckage and then cut it up and disposed of it. 
His pilot license was revoked last April and he pleaded guilty to the charges. Prosecutors said that this case serves as a reminder that illegal stunts for online fame do have consequences. An intense moment caught on camera. Connecticut police officers stopped a woman from jumping off a bridge 100 feet above a river, preventing a potential suicide. Body cam footage released yesterday shows the woman sitting on a narrow ledge outside the metal security fence. One officer can be heard on the video calmly talking to her while another officer climbed over the fence in an attempt to rescue her. The woman was finally convinced to climb back over the fence. Responding troopers then pulled her to safety and she received immediate treatment. If you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, call 988 for immediate help 24-7. Up next, asking for more Ukraine funding. Ukraine's president today addressing the U.S. Senate. Aides to President Biden are joining in. And the Swiss bank now has to pay millions to the U.S. for helping Americans skirt taxes. Find out how and how much the bank hid from the IRS. From AI to semiconductors, what the U.S. must do so that the Chinese regime doesn't overtake the U.S. The Commerce Secretary has her take. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. Here with us now is business host Don Ma to discuss the Supreme Court case involving pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma. Justices struggled over whether to allow Purdue's bankruptcy settlement to go through. Don, tell us about this case. Well, first, uh, let me just provide some background here to uh, Purdue Pharma. It's a pharmaceutical company that gained prominence through their uh, prescription drug called Oxycontin. Uh, it's a painkiller. Um, and then in 2019, uh, Purdue filed for uh, bankruptcy, Chapter 11, to address its debts. And nearly all of that debt was actually due to lawsuits. And these lawsuits were uh, accusing that the addictiveness of Oxycontin uh, actually fueled, helped fuel the opioid uh, epidemic in the U.S., which, of course, has caused uh, over half a million deaths uh, and overdose deaths uh, in the U.S. So you know, it's a serious issue. Uh, many of the suits allege that the Sackler family who were the owners of Purdue Pharma, that uh, they knew the addictiveness of this drug, and yet they promoted it uh, intensely uh, despite knowing that. And uh, in 2021, a U.S. bankruptcy court uh, allowed the Purdue Pharma's uh, bankruptcy restructuring plan to go through. And in that plan, the Sackler family uh, will pay around $6 billion. And with that, uh, the family is protected from future lawsuits, uh, meaning that uh, they can't be sued from uh, suits related to the opioid crisis. Um, so, of course, that includes people who are actually affected by the drug, who are addicted to it. And the court yesterday uh, heard arguments in an appeal by the Biden administration of the bankruptcy protection. And the justices seemed uh, very conflicted over whether to allow this uh, bankruptcy reorganization for pharma to go through. Because if they do allow, that means uh, potential victims of this drugs uh, of this drug cannot sue them. So, but why was it so hard for them to make a decision? 
Well, because this is no ordinary bankruptcy case. Uh, the case touches upon uh, the nationwide issue uh, of people being impacted by this uh, opioid epidemic, which is, of course, very a very sensitive topic. But just as important is also about whether uh, bankruptcy courts have become too powerful in the United States. Uh, the core issue here for the Supreme Court yesterday was uh, whether the Sackler family should be protected against future lawsuits on this topic. Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't really matter what the court decides to do. It's going to have a profound impact for the future. Uh, if the justices decide uh, the bankruptcy plan can't be used to protect the family, it could mean that in the future uh, lit litigation could take longer for bankruptcy plans and could slow distribution uh, to creditors and as well uh, blocking the bankruptcy deal could ultimately leave many victims of this uh, opioid crisis empty-handed. So it seems like the judges have a, a very tough decision on whether to allow the Sackler family to be protected. What else is happening in the business world right now, Don? Sure. Uh, it seems like electric vehicles have 79% more problems than other types of vehicles. And this is according to the latest auto reliability survey from Consumer Reports. The director of the group's auto testing center says the issue isn't because uh, the vehicles are electrics, but he says the problems uh, arise because EVs are mostly new models and recently introduced models tend to have more issues. Uh, but aside from that, the director says EVs tend to be higher priced models with more sophisticated, sophisticated technology features. This presents more opportunities for things to go wrong as well. And General Motors Cruise robo-taxi unit could face $1.5 million in fines. This is because it didn't disclose details of an accident back in October. And in that accident, a robo-taxi dragged a pedestrian 20 feet and the growing uh, regulatory pressure could hamper GM and Cruz's effort to rebuild the trust and restart operations in California. And last month, Cruz paused all driverless and supervised car trips in the United States and expanded a safety review of its robo-taxis. And one more update, Amazon is helping some college students get home for the holidays. The company is offering 3,000 of its prime student members domestic flights for the holiday season for just $25. And the discounted flights will become available at 9 a.m. Eastern Time Tuesday. 1,000 flights will be offered each day for three days. Members uh, who miss out will still be able to get a promotional code worth $25 off flights. And to join Prime Student, uh, you have to be 18 to 24 years old or be enrolled in a two or four year college. Just a few updates from me today. All right, thank you, Don. Thank you. And now, shifting gears, we have some international headlines from Europe and the Asia Pacific. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is set to address U.S. Senators at a classified briefing today. He'll join the meeting via a secure video conference feed. He and top aides to President Biden will advocate for more military assistance to Ukraine. The White House this week said it will run out of funds for Ukraine by the end of the year. That's as Ukraine is facing winter attacks by Russia. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the administration invited Zelensky to address senators so they can hear directly from him precisely what's at stake in this vote. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin inspecting a planned nuclear button in a new atomic bunker. Putin was given an explanation of a Soviet nuclear bomb designed and shown a mock control panel for launching a nuclear test. The tour looked like a warm-up for an imminent re-election campaign. And the Kremlin today confirmed that Putin would visit the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia on Wednesday. Putin will also host Iran's president in Moscow the following day. All three countries are oil producers. Last week, they announced new voluntary production cuts. The cuts were greeted skeptically by the oil market because of doubts as to whether they would be fully implemented. In Poland, a long line of trucks unfolded on the side of the road on Monday. That's as Polish drivers are blocking border crossings, preventing Ukrainian truckers from continuing their journeys. Polish truckers started the protest almost a month ago. They're demanding that Ukrainian companies get permits to operate in the EU and that the European truckers should need permits to enter Ukraine. Such permits were required until Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. Polish truckers argue that this has led to unfair competition from their Ukrainian counterparts. A private bank in Switzerland is admitting to helping clients evade taxes in the U.S. Bank Pictet had hid more than $5 billion from the Internal Revenue Service at various other banks. This let clients evade about $50 million in taxes between 2008 and 2014. The bank has now negotiated with the U.S. for deferred prosecution. As part of the agreement, the bank has agreed to pay over $120 million to the U.S. Treasury. Arctic weather is unfolding swaths of Russia today. Temperatures in the wilds of Siberia fell to a staggering minus 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Yakutsk was covered in freezing clouds and fog today. The city is considered one of the world's coldest. It lies about 3,000 miles east of Moscow. Despite the deadly weather, tourists made their way to the region. Many are keen to see and experience life under such extreme circumstances. One tourist said he felt the frost on his face as soon as he walked outside. He said his phone lost charge within minutes. And in Denmark, military divers detonated a World War II bomb on Sunday. The deepwater bomb weighed about 300 pounds. Defense forces say they exploded the bomb about four feet underwater and around two miles off the Danish coast. Despite the depths, video shows the bomb spraying water into the air. In the face of threats from the Chinese regime, what should the U.S. be doing to maintain its edge over key technologies? Here's Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo at a defense forum. America leads the world in artificial intelligence, period, full stop. America leads the world in advanced semiconductor design, period, full stop. That's because of our private sector. That's because we have great innovators. It's because of our public sector, too, investing in that. We're a couple years ahead of China. No way are we going to let them catch up. We cannot let them catch up. So we're going to deny them our most cutting-edge technology. Raimondo was speaking at the Reagan Defense Forum, a symposium of government and industry officials in California. Her Commerce Department plays a vital role in enforcing sanctions and export bans against the Chinese regime. She argued that 
National defense is more than military weapons. She said it also depends on technology and innovation. And that's why Raimondo said in order to defend itself, the U.S. must also have the most competitive economy in the world and, innovation engine, and an innovation engine that leads the world. Coming up, families gather for a night of food and celebration at a Winter Wonderland Festival. We'll take you to the Christmas market and its unique lights. And a runaway kangaroo in Canada. Police finally capture her after she strikes an officer in the face. We have more of the amusing footage shortly here on NTD News Today. Time to get cozy for the holidays. Check out this Christmas market and winter wonderland in upstate New York. The local community gathered in New Century Event Center to per per peruse holiday products and tasty treats. Three, two, one. <laughs> the dazzling Christmas tree was lit as this year marked the second annual Christmas market and winter wonderland event hosted by New Century. The Northern Schoolhouse Chorus performed Christmas songs for the audience. The Christmas spirit and the Christmas holiday is really about giving. It's a time of giving. It's a time of thinking about others uh, in need, thinking about families, thinking about all your friends, thinking about the beautiful local community that we're a part of. So we wanted to do this event so that people could come here and feel that spirit and feel that appreciation we have for them and also just for the, the love that we have for Christmas. Public officials were present and expressed their appreciation for the activities that enrich community culture. Uh, just uh, come on out and visit. You have another weekend coming up. You're going to do this on the 9th also? Or? I think it's good. I think it's, it's introducing a lot of people to a new culture. And um, I think that, that everyone's getting to know their neighbors. And um, there's some great exhibitors here, too, you know, selling some products and uh, some good food over there, too. The reindeer and Christmas sleigh attracted festival goers with tons of opportunities for photos. There were also lights showcasing the principles of Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, an ancient Chinese meditation practice. These three words are very meaningful because the world needs truthfulness, compassion, forbearance. We also put lotus flowers because they represent innocence and kindness. The Christmas market and light show will return on Saturday, December 9th from 3 to 8 p.m. Merry Christmas! And the National Park Service has released its list of free admission days for next year. You can visit any of the more than 400 national parks on the following days without paying an entrance fee. The first is Martin Luther King's birthday on January 15th. And the first day of the National Park Week on April 20th, Juneteenth on June 19th, the anniversary of the Great American Outdoors Act on August 4th, National Public Lands Day on September 28th, and Veterans Day on November 11th. You may still have to pay for certain amenities like camping, boat launches, or special tours. A runaway kangaroo finally apprehended in Canada after spending the weekend in the wild. 
but it wasn't easy. She scored a punch in the face of one of the police officers who brought her to her, her run to an end. According to Canadian News, the kangaroo hopped over her handlers during transport to a new home last Thursday. Officers on patrol spotted her early Monday morning on a rural property east of Toronto. So in accordance with best practices by the handlers, the officers actually just grabbed it by the tail and they were able to safely keep her contained in the area. Only one of the officers was actually struck in the face during the apprehension, but he'll be just fine and we won't be continuing the investigation. And car enthusiasts, get ready. A famous Lamborghini from an epic movie is up for sale at Sotheby's New York this week. The car behind me, this is the 1989 Lamborghini Countach 25th Anniversary Edition. But it's not your average Countach. This is one of two Countaches used in the Wolf of Wall Street movie. This 1989 Lamborghini Countach was used in driving scenes with Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie. One of the cars used was actually destroyed during the filming, but this one is the real deal. With its white-on-white -white design, it's a rare gem with only 12 of its kind believed to exist. Sotheby's expects it to fetch one and a half to $2 million when it goes up for sale on Friday. And also in New York, you could buy a watch previously owned by artist Andy Warhol. Christie's New York Luxury and Design Week is featuring some incredible items for sale. One highlight is a rare pair of orange diamond earrings known as the California Sunset Earrings. The fancy vivid orange yellow diamonds weigh around 12 carats. They are estimated to sell for 7 to 12 million dollars. The Warhol watch is estimated to fetch 350,000 to 550,000 dollars. We are absolutely delighted to offer this spectacular timepiece for sale this season. It is a Patek Philippe reference 3448 perpetual calendar with moon phases. What's extra special about this piece is that it was owned by Andy Warhol himself. The watch is 18 karat yellow gold. It's a perpetual calendar with moon phases. It's exceedingly rare in its own right because only 450 pieces were made in yellow gold. So if you add that to the incredible provenance of this timepiece and the previous ownership of this timepiece, um, it's, it's a one in a lifetime opportunity. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.